Three years ago, uh, the speaker tweeted a video uh, of a visit she made to Tiananmen Square, where she was confronted by police. She was criticized for that visit as just being a bold move with no real constructive consequences to it. Do you think there will be um, some criticism for this trip? <laughs> well, well, there already is. I mean, Tom Friedman in The New York Times called it reckless, dangerous and irresponsible. So, yeah, I, I think that probably she will get a little bit of criticism. And the Biden administration certainly didn't want her to go. Um, but uh, we got to remember that if she didn't go, Michael, she would have been emboldening the worst elements in the Chinese political system by showing everybody else that intimidation of America works. And that would have been unacceptable. And because of the debacle in Afghanistan and the failure to deter Russia in Ukraine, Taiwan has become the test the test of American credibility, not just in the region, but worldwide. So before we go, Gordon, how, how much, just in the context of things, uh, does the United States uh, in Taiwan rely on each other? Uh, there's an economic dynamic there with trade for the U.S., but is there some sense of a security relationship there for Taiwan as well? Since the 19th century, Michael, we Americans have drawn our Western defense perimeter off the coast of East Asia. Taiwan is in the middle of that line. But even more important, um, as China attacks not only our democracy, but democracies in general, we can't allow the Chinese to absorb any democracy, especially one as important as Taiwan. So, yes, defending Taiwan, in my view, is defending America. to the Mechanical Freak podcast, where we're freaking in the evening, freaking in the the afternoon, and uh, freaking in the morning this morning, Uh, just freaking out with the uh, Zerlina show, which is what you guys heard at the top of the show, the hottest new show to hit MSNBC, Uh, usually hosted by Zerlina Maxwell, uh, famed uh, Clinton campaign uh, media person, (laughs) mogul. Um, now, uh, you know, hosted temporarily by Michael Steele, uh, Muppet who went to, <laughs> went awry, right? <laughs> you know, something malfunctioned <laughs> in them. Uh, and they're interviewing Gordon Chang, who we'll talk about in a second, about uh, China stuff. So, you know, with all this China business in the news, I had to call up the only historian I know who wasn't so lazy to just do America but uh, <laughs> but decided to study China. Uh, Matt Van Dyne, how are you doing this morning, Matt? I'm doing great. Yep. <laughs> now, Rocking now in the free world. Now that you've caught up with MSNBC, you're doing fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah now you're informed. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, so, so like I said, that was uh, MSNBC interviewing famed China knower Gordon Chang. Uh, Gordon Chang, he famously wrote a book called The Coming Collapse of China, uh, which every time he gets introduced and I hear the name of that book, I always go back and look up when he wrote it, which was 2001. Uh, oh. So, <laughs> <laughs> so credentials secure as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> did, he, did he give cow. a date on the collapse? <laughs> 
<laughs> it was like, no. So they're going to grow into an economic superpower from like a proceed backwater from where they are now. But then, then, <laughs> it's going to come. After their GDP yeah. growth surpasses the US and, <laughs> and they become almost equal footing now. That's when they'll collapse. So yeah, actually, you know, it's all in the plan. Well, countries typically collapse after they become immensely important economically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, just, they just fold, yeah. <laughs> well, this is, uh, you know, Matt, as somebody's, like, studied some of the history of China and, you know, other areas of Asia or whatever, uh, I feel like every government that we don't like in Asia is going to collapse next year. Like, North Korea's been collapsing for, you know, it's going to collapse next year since 1953. Yeah. And uh, I think China's, you know... It, China's been collapsing what since 1949, right? <laughs> I mean, like the the predicting of the collapse is, you know, obviously projecting our desires to make these countries collapse. <laughs> for some countries, which we have, you know, really sped up that process for, <laughs> but yeah, China not so much recently, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and we'll get into it, but maybe this uh, speaks something to the. Um, particular relationship the united states has with china real frenemies it seems like for the last you know 40 years but um but yeah this this whole thing on msnbc all the hype or whatever is all around nancy pelosi uh just taking a little plane trip just seeing the world and going to taiwan of course that's got china up in hackles and it's got you know the commentariat going every direction uh but i got one simple question for you two why did she go? <laughs> I think that that's was an my awesome question. question. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's a great question. I think the more that I've read and thought about it, it has seemed more and more obscure why she went. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot of immediate benefit to the U.S. and certainly not to Taiwan by her going. Um, you know, it obviously makes things more precarious for people in Taiwan. Although I think an interesting point is that a lot of people in Taiwan from like things I have read and heard is that are actually like kind of in support of her coming because, well, they do like their position as like de facto independent vis-a-vis China. And this sort of like creates a relationship where it seems like other countries can have more like independent relationships with Taiwan um, led by the U.S. So there is like some support for her visit in Taiwan itself. Um but like from like a non-Taiwanese perspective, as I have, it seems like purely um, creating chaos <laughs> for hard to discern reasons other than thinking about it in sort of a bigger geopolitical perspective of showing that the U.S. can, you know, stand up to China and to Russia as well. And that, uh, you know, our position of as the world hegemon uh, that we are willing to defend that position and to um, create and escalate crises so that um, we can maintain that position. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, as much as a reason can be given, I mean, that seems to be the best one. I mean, there's been all sorts of controversy after the fact, like that apparently the Biden White House might have told her not to go <laughs> and certainly is not openly supporting it. It'd be I mean, it's kind of hard to believe that the Biden White House would have told her not to go and she went anyways. But I mean, that's very murky, you know. <laughs> um, my favorite is the uh, the sort of galaxy brain one of 
that this is her elaborate effort to avoid getting perp walked over insider trading allegations. Um, you know, allegations that have been around for years around pretty much every member of Congress. But uh, Pelosi specifically, I think we've been talking insider trading about her for like at least a year. Uh, yeah, because she's like literally a benchmark for like people who <laughs> like retail traders who follow the market. They like just copy Nancy Pelosi and her husband's <laughs> trades because yeah. they're like outperforming every hedge fund, outperforming every index fund. They're mm -hmm. like, you know, they're basically saying that she's like the master trader yeah um, so you know there's more i guess eyes on you know her trades than usual but yeah. it is a really it is funny to have that perspective i think that perspective only really comes if you you know are exclusively on like retail stock trading twitter and, yeah, yeah, and like yeah. that's like the only kind of perspective yeah. you have on like <laughs> the relationship in politics well to that point there was like the 60 tweet thread that i was trying to make heads or tails of some guy saying like look it's not just about her diverting attention from the insider trading there's a company in taiwan that her husband has like this investment in and because it like it was like 60 tweets down of this like intricate spider web yes. of a like yeah. they love that shit yeah, yeah. it's funny <laughs> it's involving semiconductors and stuff yeah, like that yeah. like from yeah. the chip yeah. Back. yeah i honestly could not i felt like i was reading another yeah. language <laughs> like i have no idea what is happening right yeah. now yeah. as i read it um yeah, yeah i mean it, it is interesting because you know could it just be this simple because nancy pelosi also went to rome uh what last month or the month before to like hang out with the pope and like you know <laughs> throw things off the balcony at italians with the pope and could it just be that our leaders are old as shit and um just they're just doing their bucket list of things their dying brain thought about 30 years ago that they should go do <laughs> and that there's it's just that simple that they're just out of their fucking minds and senile yeah i mean i think there's something to that but i mean i i do not believe that like this was not signed off on by the Biden White House. I don't believe this was a unilateral decision by Nancy Pelosi. That doesn't really make any sense to me. Um, it has to be right. Like they yeah. have to sign off, right? <laughs> it doesn't the make time, any I think, sense. Yeah. yeah, I do think there's probably like some independent, like Nancy Pelosi fighting the commies, and that's like you know how she's thought about herself for the past fifty years or something. So this is continuing that um, that clip that we watched right before. Uh, starting the show with the Gordon Chang interview, like showed images of her in Tiananmen Square right after uh, 1989, you know, they're provoking about um, the crushing of democracy there. So, you know, this has obviously been an issue for her for a while to, to fight communism in China. Um, so they like, there probably are some just like strange old personal motivations for her um, and probably also for Biden on, on that side too. But <laughs> uh yeah yeah you know they want to be the last people alive <laughs> yeah yeah that maybe she's it is just sundowning like but like her and biden are like you know mal might have his gang of five but i'm gonna send my girl pelosi over there to to punch him in the face punch mal yeah. in the jaw i don't know like uh it could just be sundowning brain syndrome i don't know but uh you know so 
a lot of Americans, I feel like, were probably caught a little off guard by the fact that uh, Taiwan is such a big issue in Asia, because naturally, as Americans, it is our inherent right to not know anything about anything. Um, what's what's China's relationship with Taiwan? Give us give us the uh, uh, what do you call it? Survey course breakdown. Yeah, of China's the relationship notes. With Taiwan. Sure, sure, yeah. So yeah, I'm gonna like back up and take us. To the seventeenth uh, century, because <laughs> I think, but I think it's actually important to like talk about the long history of of, Ta- of the long history of Taiwan to like think about both China's relationship to Taiwan and then the U.S.'s position on this because it's a it's a complex relationship. So uh, Taiwan was sort of initially colonized by the Dutch um, in the the the. 17th century um and before that taiwan was generally populated by taiwanese indigenous people who are uh they speak an austronesian language meaning like uh, austronesian languages include like indonesian but also polynesian languages like hawaiian Mm. um so not at all han chinese uh, not speaking uh any dialect of 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 chinese Mm -hmm. um and there were like some Chinese people who would, you know, like traders, pirates, et cetera, who would hang out on the Taiwanese coast before the Dutch came. But in terms of like colonization, it begins, it begins with the Dutch and they're only there for, you know, I think it's like 50 years or something, but they begin this process of colonization and they actually like bring a bunch of Han Chinese people over from mainland China. And that's when it like begins to be settled by, uh, by Han Chinese people in like heavy numbers from the provinces of, of Fujian and, and Guangzhou, um, um, or Guangdong, yeah, that are like, you know, across the the, the state, the 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 strait from from China, mm. um, and then there's like a complicated process where the Dutch are kicked out, and then the the Qing Dynasty, which is the the last dynasty of China before, um, you know, the the revolutions that hit in the early 20th century it be they take over taiwan but it's ruled sort of as this kind of backwater frontier province that uh like there's never like there's control over the lowlands of of taiwan and, and you know there's many chinese settlers who farm in the lowlands of, of taiwan uh, throughout the Qing dynasty, but the the highland area and like Taiwan's geography is it has like uh, a mountain range running down the the center of it, and that area is largely still controlled, inhabited by Taiwanese indigenous people um, throughout the Qing dynasty. So there's never like complete like sort of you know in terms of how we think about like Western settler colonialism of like completely like. Uh, like this civilizing process and assimilation and uh, cultural destruction, like doesn't entirely happen during the Qing dynasty, but you know, the, the Qing dynasty controls it. And uh, then in 1895, there's the Sino-Japanese war. And that is when uh, Taiwan becomes a part of the Japanese empire and becomes a Japanese colony. And the Japanese sort of like, use much more of a like what we would think of a western colonizing process uh on taiwan in terms of like establishing real control and uh you know destroying the culture of indigenous taiwanese people and also like controlling the han chinese people there as well 
Um, well, and this is part of that general trend in the early 20th century of Japan, uh, fairly brutally colonizing like Korea and the Korean Peninsula, you know, all these different yep. areas lead up to World Absolutely. War II. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Seems important yeah. for modern Asian history, but yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 And then like, so, you know, so uh, colony of Japan from 1895 until 1945 and the World War II. Um, China, though, uh, there's the 1911 revolution and then like the process of, of communist revolution and Chinese nationalists are all including like, and when I say Chinese nationalists, I'm including like to some extent the Chinese communists as well of people who are thinking about creating an independent or a China that is not being picked apart by foreign imperialist powers they are looking to the the geo body of the Qing dynasty as that is what china was and will be uh into the future so and that's true of both the the nationalists being like the guomindang the kmt uh that established the republic of china led by chiang kai-shek that they end up going to taiwan but they don't do that until after losing the chinese civil war after world war ii so they see taiwan as gonna be part of china and then the chinese communists as we now know like also certainly see taiwan as being part of china and that's all because of yeah looking back to what the Qing dynasty looked like before impeals and picks it apart um yeah. Yeah, and this is part yeah. of, again, another fun 20th century process. Uh, you know, people feel like nation states have been around forever. And this idea that, oh, a nation state has to have some, like, uh, history in the blood and soil or something. But the reality is, every country just picks some arbitrary date in the past. And it's like, yeah, that that's that's when we were, you know, mm -hmm. a full country. And then they define everything sort of around right. that, as opposed yeah, to, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, and everybody can pick their own date. That's what makes it fun and keeps the conflict mm -hmm. going. <laughs> right, right, yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, and I think those complicating factors, well, for Taiwan, like, and the people who live in Taiwan, both Han Chinese and Taiwanese indigenous people, like, well, they, you know, had a very different historical experience of the 20th century than people in mainland China. Um, and, like, of, like, this long, direct Japanese colonial rule. Um, so, like, there was anti-Japanese sentiment that was then, like, yeah, like, was maybe pointing to an independent Taiwan. For the people living there uh, as opposed mm -hmm. to as opposed to be seeing themselves as part of the nationalist communist struggle on the mainland uh, in the early 20th century um yeah <laughs> and so what's the what's the u.s relationship then how to how do we come in i assume uh, right. to bring good favor and cheer and whatnot to the situation yeah, yeah. but uh right all right so let's let's just talk about like end of end of world war ii um the Japanese are finally being kicked out of China, partially through like U.S. support, uh, and we especially were supporting the nationalists uh, led by Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, you know, you'll see it as the KMT, the Guomindang. That's the that's the party led by Chiang Kai-shek, who is you know a corrupt authoritarian gangster in a lot of ways, and. Uh, but he's he's the guy the U.S. throws their the weight of their support behind because he's not a communist. Um, but you know his his regime is pretty discredited by the end of World War II, and then he loses the Chinese Civil War from 1945 to 1949 against the communists, and the communists successfully take over the country in this four-year period. And then Chiang Kai-shek, who's still supported by the U.S., he uh, 
he flees to Taiwan with all his forces and um, and his Republic of China that had been established on the mainland now is just on Taiwan and the U.S. is supporting and basically like allowing for that to exist because I don't think that China would have like without U.S. military backing, I think the PRC would have pretty quickly like taken control of Taiwan, but that is not allowed to happen by the U.S. Um, and, you know, I think Douglas MacArthur talks like there's this famous quote of him referring to Taiwan as an unsinkable aircraft carrier um, at some point during this period. And the U.S. comes to then establish military bases in Taiwan during the 1950s. I think at the height in during the Vietnam War, there's 30,000 U.S. troops on Taiwan. Um, and yeah, we are using it as a bulwark of anti-communism in the, the Pacific region uh, and right mm. next to China. And, you know, uh, I think Taiwan or the Republic of China is recognized as the official China in the UN until 1971, until the US begins to establish different relationships with the PRC. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, interestingly, you know, for those UN heads out there, uh, you might go back and look at like pre-1971 UN votes and look at Security Council votes and be like, damn, you know, uh, what are the Chinese communists doing? A lot of shitty votes in there. And so you realize that the U.S. actually insisted that Taiwan was China <laughs> until right. like and gave them the uh, Security Council seat that was uh, supposed to go to China uh, during that time period. So leading to a lot of uh, funny things in history class if you're if you're following uh, international politics. <laughs> um, yep. <laughs> you know. Wait, so Matt, so basically the the KMT and the um, the communists had to band together to defeat like the Japanese like empire right and like kick mm -hmm. them out of China and then after they kicked them out of China then they had to fight each other right and um in in a way and mm -hmm. um so the US ceded like territory like basically all of China but because the KMT and just the nationalists or you know the KMT nationalists like you know fled to Taiwan was it because they were like consolidated in Taiwan that like even though the US was able to and like just Western imperialist powers were able to cede like, you know, large swaths of land in China. It was like harder to, you know, I guess one for the communists to take over Taiwan because they were all consolidated in a smaller country. Like, is that because I mean, I'm I'm just trying to square how I guess the U.S. allowed um, like the communists to really win in that in that mm -hmm. way. But like how the communists weren't able to take over Taiwan, too. Sure. Uh, and I think like, well, the the communists were able to win in China because, yeah, like they were able to gain the support of the masses of peasantry in the countryside and to build like a massive military force that was able to defeat the, the nationalists who, again, like, you know, there was obviously support for them in terms of like fighting the Japanese, but they're like, yeah, like, you know, had sort of lost credibility uh amongst like large parts of the population especially compared to um to the communists who like really were promising yeah we're gonna not just create an authoritarian capitalist regime that's gonna like suck for the mass the vast majority of people we're going to try to like you know make the workers and peasants the masters of the country and that had a lot of appeal um and i think it was just the u.s was not willing to so and like 
backing up a second, like I think, yes, the nationalists and the communists banded together to fight the Japanese, but they're also always fighting each other. That was always mm. an incredibly contentious relationship. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, the United Front was rarely all that united, and I, and the U.S. was giving lots of military support, uh, mostly to the nationalists, but also like somewhat to the communists too. Um, but I think like the U.S., especially at the end of World War II, was not willing to like commit the massive amount of manpower necessary to try to like fight the Chinese civil war for the communist for, for the nationalists. Uh, mm-hmm. And just that would have been a, you know, massive, probably failed military undertaking. Uh, and, and, and in terms of like, well, why did the communists not, um, why were they not able to take control of, of Taiwan more? Um, yeah. Why was Taiwan like able to become the nationalist? fortress it's i think it's, i think that's kind of the history of taiwan that like well it was it was colonized by the japanese and like very intensely colonized for 50 plus years and i don't think and like this is an area of history that i do not know enough about to say certainly and i'd be very curious to know about like leftist communist anti-colonial organizing in taiwan that's the thing i don't really know very much about but i don't like i don't think there was like a big uh mm. leftist uh anti-colonial movement happening uh, under Japanese. Certainly not to the extent in mainland China. Yes, yes, Mm. yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, certainly in 49, the U.S. perspective was that we let China go red or whatever, but, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously we don't want to rob any agency from the, you know, Chinese people. And I think there's also a considerable amount of uh, just hilarious U.S. bungling involved as well. At one point, in order to distract uh, Henry Wallace during the lead up to the 44 election, like FDR sends him to China to go, you know, research what's going on in China, like go kick over some dirt in China. And he comes back with this long report where he's like, in the report, he's like, I think this Chiang Kai-shek guy might be a criminal that everybody hates. <laughs> and it kind of seems like this Mao guy is going to win. And Roosevelt was like, thanks for the report, Henry. And just threw it in the trash. Right? <laughs> <laughs> is that is there some room in siberia to send him to now <laughs> like, yeah. you know? um but there was some some you know uh in asia i feel like this has been the classic american thing of like uh, all asians are the same you know like it doesn't matter and then uh horribly uh doing horrible missteps then in foreign policy <laughs> at that point but um so the u.s relationship with Taiwan is part of the sort of Cold War policy mm-hmm. uh, that also extends to South Korea and places like Okinawa and things like that of, you know, I like that MacArthur quote of it's just an aircraft carrier, <laughs> you know, a giant aircraft carrier in the Pacific. And I mean, I, that seems to be just how the U.S. treats all the, that region, right? The Philippines, Okinawa, South Korea is like, this is just a base for putting our weapons that we're pointing at China and at the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah, and especially in the 50s and 60s. And then, like, yeah, it really changes in 19... Like, after Nixon goes to China and, and relations begin to open up, like, the relationship begins, like, becomes much more ambig- ambiguous. And, like, the U.S. withdraws all troops from Taiwan uh, by, I think, like, 1979, when we established formal diplomatic relationships with the PRC. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, like, the U.S. support for Taiwan, it still exists, but it's it's much more unclear. Like 
would we actually defend Taiwan if the PRC invaded? And that's mm. where like moments like Pelosi's visit come in. And it's like, well, you can like read a million meanings into it of saying that like, this is a, you know, a unofficial reestablishment or like confirmation that we would provide that military support, but it's a little bit unclear whether that would happen. Um, uh, I think most defense or many defense analysts predict that we would lose a war with, with China if they were to try to invade. And that seems pretty convincing. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and since, again, since 1979, well, the China has gone through great like market oriented economic reforms. Uh, they are, you know, the U S's number one trading partner. PRC is also Taiwan's number one U.S. Uh, number one trading partner. Uh, you know, they Taiwan trades far more with with the PRC than they do with the United States. Um, so yeah, these relationships are are pretty ambiguous right now, um, and that of course like has I think that ambiguity has has probably enhanced calls in in China for the reincorporation of Taiwan just into China and and like made that seem maybe more like a, a realistic possibility that could happen like even without massive warfare um so so China China claims that um Taiwan is a part of China because mm-hmm. like historically they were at one point right or right is that- yeah yep exactly and like referring back to, uh, to the Qing dynasty and saying the only reason that Taiwan is not a part of the PRC, although like officially they are a part of the PRC. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and like, like even they, according to like yeah. international law, they are, I guess, but I don't know, it's all sort of obscure. But yeah, but basically they're saying like the de facto independence shouldn't even exist. Like that shouldn't exist. Be- yeah, at all, because but, basically yeah. like their independence became like, or, you know, you know, quote unquote independence came from colonialism. Yep, exactly. Like, from the yeah. Dutch, yeah. Yep, yep. So. And then, you know, the weird thing is that, well, the KMT still exists as a political party in Taiwan, and their position is 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 the same in that, like, China and uh, that Taiwan is just part of China. They think of it as being, like, part of the Republic of China. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, both of these parties agree that Taiwan is part of China. Uh, and... The KMT ruled Taiwan as through authoritarian rule until the 1980s, and since then there have been other political parties that have developed that, like you know, are much more pushing towards independence. But um, and and seeing Taiwan as not part of China, but yeah, there are many people on both sides of the strait that see it as part of China. Yeah, and this is, you know, so, you know, this is China's sort of one China policy, right, mm-hmm. is that yep. Taiwan's part of China. And in the 70s, there's this sort of consensus that's called the Taiwan Consensus, which seems to just be uh, live and let live between Taiwan and China. But uh, we're all just going to secretly know that it's part of China on some level. Um that consensus seems to come out of this changing relationship with the United States and China, right? The U S kind of like basically backing off a little bit on being some attack dog in Taiwan. What's the status of that sort of consensus now? And like, what, what what's changed, right? Cause it seems to have been like, you know, we'll allow Taiwan to keep doing what they're doing just so long as we all quietly acknowledge that it should be part of China. Mm-hmm. Right. And don't vocally get too uppity about the independence. That's that yeah. the status quo that's getting a little bit rocked lately. 
Right. Yeah. And I think there has been this ambiguous status quo for a long time. I, I think uh, Xi Jinping, like his, uh, yeah, there's been some pushes towards uh, a more nationalistic uh, foreign policy in general under Xi. And I think uh, that includes, well, like making more moves to re like more aggressive moves to, to, to try to reincorporate Taiwan into the PRC again, um, as opposed to like being okay with the, the state of things as they are. Um, and like whether, you know, like same with, as with Pelosi's visit, that it's hard to, to exactly tell what the, the end game is, I think for, for Xi Jinping too. I mean, yeah, sure, definitely the stated end game is reincorporation of Taiwan into China. Um, to what extent that's like a real that they're going to go and invade Taiwan. You know, I think there's definitely some signs that they would, but it's also pretty, yeah, again, like maybe that's also like playing into domestic politics in China, you know, dealing with COVID and, you know, economic slowdowns like everyone else. And and to what extent, uh, yeah, Hmm. yeah how yeah. real these these calls are hard to say but there does seem to be then again this rationing up of tension that yeah and like this has happened in waves over the decades right uh, and we seem to be entering a moment of, of definitely enhanced tension that is like and the u.s certainly is rationing up tension with with china um right now as well so yeah, and I mean, you know, maybe it's a good time to talk about the Taiwan Policy Act, right? Which so this is some legislation pushing through Congress, and I'll just read the the Politico summation of it right here, which is uh, the legislation initially introduced by the Democratic chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee represents the most dramatic shakeup of the U.S.-Taiwan relationship since the Taiwan Relations Act, which that's 1979, which has guided U.S. policy on subjects since 1979. Because they did that. <laughs> it authorizes $4.5 billion in security assistance for Taiwan and gives the island the distinction of being a, quote, major non-NATO ally of the U.S., among other provisions. Um, Mm -hmm. so one, I mean, I guess let's talk about that four and a half billion dollars in military aid. Is that new for Taiwan to just get a giant chunk of military equipment from the U.S.? No, it's not. And, uh, I think if you look up the Wikipedia article, U.S. arms sales to Taiwan, you have a list of all of the, uh, arms sales that have gone on, like, under every president. Uh, <laughs> it's quite the ledger, I gotta say. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so this is, it is not new that we are, like, you know, pledging defense to Taiwan and selling weapons to them. That's, that's, that's not new. Um, I think, like, yeah, by, like, passing it as an act, it sends, it has this symbolic value of sending a message to China that we are, you know, stepping up our support for Taiwan and, and don't mess with it and don't mess with us. Um, and, you know, I think the, the real message is don't mess with U.S. hegemony in the world either. Uh, mm-hmm. That uh, Taiwan can be a flashpoint for the, uh, yeah, the, the defense of, of U.S. imperial power. Um, and, I think that's that's not a new role for Taiwan, and I think it sucks for people in Taiwan that it's used as this geopolitical, you know, uh, chess piece. Um, but yeah, it's not a new role. Uh, I share like 
I think I shared with you all in that Google Doc that, you know, you could share with the listeners a propaganda poster, a, a PRC propaganda poster from 1955 that has, a, um, you know, it shows a U.S. official using Taiwan as a lever with a picture of a, like, you know, an injured Chiang Kai-shek is, is on the island of Taiwan. They're, like, like using a stick with mm-hmm. Taiwan as a lever to, like, pry open uh, the PRC. Uh, mm-hmm. and you know, I think that the the in the the meanings in that 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 image kind of ring a little bit true of of well, yeah, the U.S. is like, obviously don't care about like democracy in Taiwan. Really, I mean, we supported Taiwan when it was nowhere close to being a democracy for for decades. Um, mm. But it's this 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 uh, flashpoint for and this lever for. Uh, ratcheting up tension with China and, and showing our, our might in the Pacific region. Um, and I think, you know, you could say probably a similar thing about Ukraine and Europe that like, you know, like Ukraine is this chess piece where the U.S. can uh, assert itself against Russia. Um, yeah, I mean, that's you know, interesting that you would bring that up because in all the discussion of the Taiwan Policy Act, that's all anybody who's pushing it can bring up, right? So I had some select quotes here. Uh, the act itself it was written by this guy named Bob Menendez. He's a Democrat for New Jersey, right? And his quote on it is, quote, this is a plan of attack eerily reminiscent. He's talking about China's plan to attack Taiwan that he's supposing exists in order to justify this bill, right? This is a plan of attack eerily reminiscent of Vladimir Putin's in Ukraine, we saw the warning signs of Ukraine in 2014 and failed to take action that might have deterred further Russian aggression. We cannot afford to repeat that mistake in Taiwan. Now, the two biggest pushers of this who are doing the media blitz are Richard Blumenthal, who's a Democrat from Connecticut, and Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina. See, we can get bipartisan agreement on some <laughs> things, right? One or yeah. three has bipartisan <laughs> agreement. Um, but Lindsey Graham, right, you know, Almost six months into this war, Ukraine is bloodied but still standing unbowed. NATO is bigger, not smaller. Keep in mind, he's talking, this is him talking about the Taiwan Policy Act. Just put this out there, right? Um, The International Criminal Court is coming after Putin and his cronies, and we're going to strangle the Russian economy. Um, And then he finally ends it with saying, if you want to receive uh, what Vladimir Putin did, try to go into Taiwan. So it's nice that he was able to get a mention of Taiwan in this discussion there. Uh, Blumenthal came in and was saying china is watching what we do in ukraine that's why we need to send more of the high mars multiple long-range artillery so that ukraine is successful during this next month uh during its counteroffensive. and pelosi of course herself wrote a uh sort of mea culpa or i guess you know a, a reason for going to taiwan in the washington post uh the final three paragraphs of which are all about her bold delegation that she led to Kiev and, you know, support for Ukraine. And, you know, that by going to <laughs> Taiwan, she's you know, showing her commitment to Ukraine, etc. Right. Um, real interesting that all of our discussion about one wildly escalating tensions with China <laughs> at this moment and sending huge amounts of weapons to Taiwan, that the entire discussion of it seems to be completely dominated by Russia and Ukraine. I mean, I think, yeah, <laughs> not not any like particularly novel thoughts other than, yeah, like uh, like U.S. feels 
threatened by both Russia and China and by the increased connections between the two of them uh, that like Russia and China are making. And, you know, it then makes sense that we are, you know, drawing these connections between Ukraine and Taiwan as our, you know, like lever points to try to, you know, threaten this, both countries uh, and their growing relationship between the two of them um, to try to reestablish our dominance. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, speaking to about how the U.S. kind of, um, you know, it's its own sort of, I mean, not uh, casual, but pretty overt and explicit racism towards Asia gets itself backed into these positions. I mean, one of the factors of the U.S. sort of involvement in the Korean War and on the Korean Peninsula was this idea of like, well, we have to have this hard line in Korea because then what would happen in Berlin if we didn't? <laughs> Right, you know, <laughs> and this sort of obsession with Europe and what Asia means vis-a-vis Europe, you know, <laughs> and uh, it's historically led to great things. So you know, fingers crossed, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this comes down to the sort of just U.S. policy general vis-a-vis the world. Um, you know, there, there's of course. I think this Taiwan Policy Act, a lot of the alarm about it is the amount of weapons going, right? But also this idea that, uh, you know, we're going to re, you know, we're going to redefine Taiwan as a major non-NATO ally. Uh, I wonder what stopped them from just putting Taiwan in NATO. (laughs) 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 Non-NATO ally. Finland and Sweden did, right? I mean, interestingly, right, like right when this visit was happening, Pelosi was tweeting about, uh, you know, getting Finland and and Sweden admitted into uh, Mm -hmm. NATO, which, you know, Finland historically on the right side of these things, let me tell you. But um, but yeah, you know, the the Taiwan is a non, you know, major non NATO ally. I think people are, you know, we periodically get woken up to this reality of what's been happening for 30 years, which is the U.S. is encircling all of its post-Cold War enemies, right? And dating back to the, like, Project for a New American Century in the late 90s and the Senate Hart-Rubman report that was a 25-year plan for maintaining U.S. dominance into the new millennium, weird things that we never talk about anymore, but all of which focused on this idea of the straits between Taiwan and China have to be controlled by the U.S. in order to maintain the sort of U.S. stranglehold over the international economy, uh, as well as the fact that encircling China and Russia were going to become top priorities. And it certainly seems like this flap over Taiwan, the current affairs happening in Ukraine, uh, all show that this plan is kind of going apace, right? The encirclement is happening uh, but on the other side of it, right, there are people pushing back. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, I think what's scary about it is that, like, yeah, not, yeah, the Pelosi visit, like, not about to start World War Three, obviously. But uh, I think what's scary is, well, like, there doesn't seem to be a lot of concern for the, the various, like, red lines that might exist for Beijing and for Moscow about, like, mm-hmm. yeah, what won't be allowed and the U.S. seems to be just completely, like, not even really thinking about this. Um, and, yeah, like, ratcheting up tensions when against nuclear-armed powers is kind of scary. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and not, uh, and uh. especially, like, not really at all thinking about the, the ramifications of what you're doing. 
Uh, and like, well, in Europe, there are lots of military bases, lots of nuclear weapons all over the place that like maybe serve as like a, a you know, a, you know, mutually assured destruction counterweight that like will like prevent like the outbreak of like massive deadly war. I think the situation in the Pacific is a bit more complicated <laughs> um, and that, uh, yeah, like China, I, I'm not at all like a defense military policy guy at all but like my sense is that uh yeah china really does hold all the military cards in this region and that ignoring china's red lines and ratcheting up tensions could create a military conflict where then like the u.s or china feels pushed to like do something pretty drastic that uh yeah. <laughs> yeah. That could be the end of us all. <laughs> so, and we're certainly not there yet, but uh, it's very disturbing to see like the Pelosi's of the world sort of flying around as if, you know, this is all just a vanity trip and, and doesn't have real potential dangerous consequences for everybody. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The other day I was listening on uh, NPR because I'm a real sophisticant, you know, but uh, <laughs> they're interviewing this, you know, American, I think he was an army general, but had, you know, some position in NATO or whatever. And now he's just one of these retired talking heads on all these fucking things. And they were talking about Ukraine. And, you know, uh, he was saying like, yeah, you know, this new shipment is obviously a new shipment of weapons going to Ukraine, right? And he was like, you know, we have to be mindful of these shipments in, you know, Moscow's red lines because, uh, you know, Russia, the Russian military has these small, you know, like one kiloton tactical nukes. And it's part of their national defense policy that if they feel the borders of Russia are being threatened to use these weapons to disperse any sort of potential invasion. Right. So he's saying, like, you know, we have to, it, it, you know, we have to have some sort of caution around what's going on in the Ukraine. The interviewer then asked him, like, well, do you think then that the Ukraine shouldn't launch a counteroffensive uh, against, you know, the Russian occupation in the east of Ukraine? And the general says, oh, no. I'm not saying don't do it because it might lead to a nuclear war. I'm just saying be aware there might be a nuclear war. <laughs> and, and it really like spoke to the casualness that all this has yeah. been taken in. <laughs> you know, well, it is if a country like Russia could use a nuclear weapon without immediate massive nuclear retaliation, you know, um, it, it it is one of those things of, I don't know that we've been quite as close to World War Three <laughs> as we are in the moment, at least not in the last 30, 40 years. And uh, and everybody seems to just be OK with it. I don't know if it's our, our just new post-COVID uh, apocalyptic mindset or what. But <laughs> it just seems to be all right. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just one more point of the red lines comment. I mean, I, I think for not for our listeners but for a lot of uh people in america the response is always seems to just be uh yeah the u.s is encircling russia it's encircling china but maybe beijing and moscow should just not have red lines and just get over it or something but i i just think it's a little foolish to think no matter what you think of the chinese government or the russian government it's foolish to think that any state's government would just allow the state to be strangled from the outside you know mm -hmm. um you know, yeah. it, which I think points to this red line issue of like, I mean, this, how much do we want to push this? Right. 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 
Well, especially like you know the PRC's like economic rise in the past couple decades. Like, they, yeah, why would they? Why would they let that be threatened? <laughs> like, why would they not want to do what they can do to mm-hmm. uh, to continue that uh, and mm-hmm. to have red lines and to to defend themselves? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Well, well, especially you know as the future appears to be more and more China's. Uh, it would be an odd thing for them to just step back and say, you know what? Uh, let the U.S. have this one. Yeah, <laughs> let, they can let, have it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's, let's not continue to expand economically. Let's not right, continue right, right. to expand <laughs> yeah, yeah. internationally. And, and like, you know, here it's, you know, it's easy to have apocalyptic predictions, but it's well, like, like China's U.S. is number one trading partner, partner mm-hmm. and vice versa too, right? Like these, economies are deeply deeply intertwined that like uh, i mean maybe maybe capitalism can save us from from the apocalypse but i doubt that so um yeah but, but it, 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 i guess in the short term like yeah it's like we're not at world war three yet and that is like yeah. it's a complicated situation right so, yeah. yeah of course i mean uh there was an interesting article uh that came out last week too uh let's take a look at that was about the sort of economic reforms within uh, Russia and the European Union generally. And what you're seeing is the sort of contraction within those countries towards sort of wartime economies, right? Um, where Russia is basically saying like, look, there's a lot of high tech components we're not going to get in the near future. Uh, we're going to have to rebuild our economy to work without it, right? Um we're going to have to rebuild our oil and gas industry to face towards the east instead of towards the west, right? Something that, by the way, uh, the U.S., like, it's all its economic power is based on oil and gas being sold in dollars. So just one of those, like, funny side effects of heightening tensions in Ukraine that might just uh, bring about an earlier collapse to the American empire than would have previously occurred. Uh, but the interesting part was in places in Western Europe, they were talking about in Germany, they're now at level two of panic, apparently, their official panic scale regarding energy inputs and natural gas, and are moving towards gas rationing in the winter, right? And I think there's something that Americans don't understand because we don't have a relationship to production anymore because we have service industry jobs and things like that, is that uh, a lot of resources and stuff that we use every day and make our life possible come from places like russia and china mm-hmm. and as the europeans are about to find out when it gets really fucking cold in the winter uh those things can be cut off strategically too uh and this is my sort of concern about escalation is yeah you know there's already too much escalation happening vis-a-vis ukraine and europe but what's going to happen when the germans get cold in the winter these are not a people who've lived with discomfort any time in the last 40 years, right? What's going to happen when they have no more heating gas? You know, are they going to be sick of the war in Ukraine or are they going to turn that into let's just nuke Russia, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's where things start to get out of hand. I think mm-hmm. like the entire build up to World War One, I, I think people felt something bad was about to happen, but what, everything was so small, it seemed like. And it was just like, mm-hmm. yeah, what, what does it matter? all the right. a, a duke gets assassinated who cares right you know mm-hmm. uh but things tend to spiral because people are yep. doing it and people right, are fucking right. irrational and crazy you know mm-hmm. yeah and then like the the u.s china corollary is like if our like supply of cheap consumer goods is cut off 
which yeah. is, you know, why we have cheap consumer goods is, is trade with China. Um, yeah. yeah. If, if the tree pipeline gets cut off, I mean, the U.S. <laughs> would go nuclear. Like, there would be 99% yeah. support in the United States for a nuclear war. You know? Um, yeah. Got ever treats. <laughs> you need our treats. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It's, it's certainly concerning. You know, and I think the correct analogy, right, is the pre-war one period. We've entered this period of intense sort of inter-imperialist rivalries, right? The globe, as Lenin said in 1900, is fully divided, right? And all that's left is to fight each other for, you know, gains and losses. And, uh, you know, that historically has not led to good places. But maybe not war tomorrow. <laughs> 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 I I gotta say, if the U.S. did end the world by starting a nuclear war, it'd be really funny that Nancy Pelosi did it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And then Joe Biden presided over it. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> well, uh, I guess with that, uh, do you have any closing thoughts on uh, on on China, the situation, what's going on? Do you have a good impression of how Trump says China or Trump, how Trump says China, Matt? China. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> uh, if people want to learn anything about Taiwan, what's a good place to find out? Uh, yeah, so I think an easy starting point is the uh, podcast American Prestige that is hosted by UW Pre Professor Daniel Bethner uh, and somebody else, Derek Davidson, is uh, they're doing like a little series on Taiwan history with uh, another professor, James Lin, who teaches in the Taiwan Studies program at UW. Uh, and I think that's a good little short overview for the, the complicated history of Taiwan. Um, it'll take you a little bit deeper than what you'll see in MSNBC and whatnot. So. <laughs> Yeah. Do, do not disparage Zerlina, my new favorite show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, you know, once again, we're entering the cool zone. Nothing. <laughs> the future's so bright. Gotta wear shades. Additional comments about how good things are going to be. So uh, <laughs> we'll see everybody next time. Bye bye. <laughs>